Hello and welcome to the C21 podcast. My name is Jonathan Webdale. We hope you're safe and well wherever you may be. Today we hear from Helium's Mark Fennessy, Nevis Productions' Annie Fernandez, Synchronicity Films' Claire Mundell, Badage Group's Lars Blomgren, Cineflix Rights' James Jury, and Asatcha Media Group's Marina Williams, as C21's Content London returns as a live, in-person event. C21's Content London took place earlier this week, with over 130 speakers and 1,300 delegates gathering in the UK capital for the sellout development market's return as a physical event for the first time since the pandemic. Senior executives, producers, writers and talent from all around the world descended on the King's Place Conference Centre to get a glimpse of the hottest new shows, discuss how the past 18 months has changed the business and the way things are shaping up for 2022. Two sets of execs sat down with me at the event to share their insights into the challenges and opportunities that they see in the international TV industry in the coming 12 months and their sheer excitement of being able to meet face-to-face again. In a moment, you'll be hearing from Mark Fennessy, the former co-chief executive of Endemol Shine Australia, now founder of new venture Helium, Annie Fernandez, the ex-chief executive of Scandi producer Yellowbird, now founder of Nevis Productions, plus Claire Mundell, MD and Creative Director of Scottish Indie Synchronicity Films. Then, from Banerjee Group Head of Scripted Lars Blomgren, Cineflix Rights Head of Scripted TV James Jury, and Asatcha Media Group Co-Chief Executive Marina Williams. But first, a word from C21 Editor-in-Chief and Managing Director David Jenkinson about getting Content London 2021 over the line, his take on the changes the pandemic has brought about, and where the event goes from here. Obviously, it was a big decision to take back in February, I think it was, towards the end of February, just as we had emerged from the third lockdown in the UK to proceed with an in-person event. I mean, that that, that was a, a fairly bold move. Yeah, well, fortune favours the brave, Jonathan, as you know, and um, it wasn't as brave as it potentially looked from the outside. We always had a get-out clause. It was just about how much money we would lose as the nearer we got to the actual time of the event. So we always had a, a plan to go digital if conditions didn't allow us to run Content London. It was just the, the amount of effort and the amount of financial loss uh, if we decided to do that to cancel the event late, late on. And, you know, heart goes out to IBC, which really tried to make it it itself happened later this week in Amsterdam. They unfortunately had to cancel that event uh, because really of the of the local conditions. And, and it's never easy. You want to do the best thing. You want to put on uh, events because that's one of the things that you do for a living. But you've got to make sure it's the right thing at the right time. And it's what people want to see. Uh, we've had a lot of success over the last two years doing content on demand events. But people are now a bit tired of Zoom and there's a massive appetite to get back to, to real life. So um, obviously, as you say, we've been doing content London as a, as a virtual event last year and content on demand in between times as well. Um, but where do you feel that uh, the event is now? Obviously a physical one, but in terms of its sort of positioning, I suppose, in the industry cycle and the market kind of moving forwards. It's been an interesting 18 months, two years, because alongside the pandemic, there's been a structural change in the business and Content London, Content LA, Content Canada, the content on demands events that we do, they're all positioned as development marketplaces. 
and development's really important. The sales part of the international television business has become less of a driver for, for deals in the last couple of years. And the growing strength of streamers over the last 18 months and that sort of direct to streamer commission has also sort of changed the business as well. So from a positional point of view, we think that Content London is one of the big events that's now back is going to enjoy good growth going forward because the business is all about development. It's about getting the creative talent together at the point of commission or even before the point of commission at the point of the original concept of the idea and and, and, and putting the stakeholders in place so that projects can be taken to market before the aftermarket sales part. There often isn't an aftermarket sales part left uh, anymore. So we're really comfortable coming out of this pandemic that Content London and all the other content brands are in the right place. They're about bringing people together in an exciting, creatively driven, development-focused marketplace and conference so that people can put together projects and then take them out to the world. It's not really a sales, a sales and aftermarket business. And I think that's what the market needs right now. And to what extent do you feel like the industry has rebounded from the pandemic. I mean, the fact that we're getting back together in the room is obviously significant, but it's been a tough few years for everybody. So um, as you say, development has been a a big part of the last couple of years, but, you know, production has continued. What are you expecting from 2022? It's a reset, isn't it? It's a reset and it's not a hard reset yet because we don't quite know. We've had a few false starts and I'm sure that we're not out of the woods yet if we've going to mix metaphors as well as possible. Um, everyone wants to get going and get back. But if you think about it, you know, the last Content London was 2019 and, and Disney Plus had only just launched then. I think they'd just launched in, uh, the month before. There's been so many new platforms um, come onto the market during the past two years. And the growth of the streamers and the continued development of, of all of those platforms has structurally changed the business quite significantly. That means that traditional broadcasters and distributors and producers have probably started to redesign their own approach to market. And I'm sure there's going to be increased collaboration and co-production between partners from the sort of traditional space going forward as a reaction to uh, the competition that's been faced from the on-demand uh, services. So this is a really, really important moment in the sort of the structural technology delivered evolution of the business in terms of you know getting programs over online to watch wherever you want to watch them. That really is now the reality and the driving force of the business. But also the last 18 months has seen a lot of anxieties develop and shape the consciousness of the world. And, you know, television sits at the interface between entertainment and humanity and uh, everything from the climate crisis to issues around diversity and inclusion, Black Lives Matter, to the state of mental health. Um, so, So many things have played across the scene that we've all watched through our browsers uh, for the last 18 months. And, and that isn't going to not have an impact on, on what happens next. So I think not only structurally will we talk a lot this week about change and how the shape of the business is different going forward, but we'll probably be asking a lot of bigger questions about the role television plays in the world, because you know you could argue that in, in, in 20, 50, 100 years from now, unless something's done none of us might be around to watch television or we might be watching it bobbing around on our 
on our boats in the middle of sort of um, a, a sea of um, desolation. That's a cheery thought. Um, so I think that I think there are sort of big issues to think about now. And um, I, I'm sure that nobody is coming into Content London without an understanding that like the future is really not based on the past. This is a, a really... It's, a, it's an opportunity to reset in a significant way and for the content business to be, you know, part of the change it wants to see in the world and not just um, a reflection that sort of serenades mankind on its way to oblivion. So there's there's quite a lot of big, big issues and big, big thoughts to have alongside the traditional what are we going to make next to get onto that platform conversation. So it's a really interesting time. And where does Content London itself go from here? Gosh, well, we'll see. I mean, I think that um, the content brand generally and its relationship with our other businesses, like our publishing business, allows us to be a hybrid solution that people can use to get their shows to market from a marketing perspective and their information about that market to make the, the right decision. So we're very much about plugging everything in together and providing uh, a cost-effective, nimble, entertaining, creative environment where we can really create a space for people to connect in the best way, uh, not just at the events like Content London and Content LA and all the other ones, but through the different hybrid offerings that also allow people to use the platform to showcase their programming digitally. I mean, C21 screenings over the past 18 months has really grown into a very significant business and it plugs in to the events as well. So I think going forward, I think there'll be rapid growth in the content brands. Content London in 2019 was nearly 3,000 people. And this year it's around 1,200 because we've capped it. Going forward, I think it's going to explode. And I think it's one of those places that people love to come because it's creatively driven and it's about development. And it's got an authenticity that respects the whole process. And, and, and we understand the business that we're in because we report on it every day. You're joining us live from Content London 2021, a real life in-person event at the King's Place Conference Centre in the heart of the UK capital. We're back in the room after a pandemic-induced move online last year with over 130 speakers, 1,300 delegates gathering to get a glimpse of the hottest new shows. Talk about the ways in which the last 18 months have changed the business and how things are shaping up for 2022. So I'm delighted to be joined by Mark Fennessy, the former co-chief executive of Endemol Shine Australia, now founder of Helium, Annie Fernandez, the former chief executive of Scandi producer Yellow Bird, now founder of Nevis Productions, and Claire Mundell, managing director and creative director of Scottish indie Synchronicity Films. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Content London. Great to have you here. Hello. Great to be in London. It's great so to be nice. anywhere. You. you made it. I mean, Mark, you've, you've just come all the way from Australia, so uh, fantastic. You, you just slipped in under the radar there. Yeah, I was touch and go as to whether I was going to make it, um, but it's just incredibly exciting to be in London. It's just great to be at this kind of a brilliant market and to see a lot of great friends and colleagues you know, that really, it's kind of, it was just so exciting getting on a plane. It really was. <laughs> Probably my first ever overseas trip. It's great to be here. How about you, Annie? It was a little stressful to get here, to be honest, because we had, you had some news, news announced on Saturday. So I didn't actually almost cancelled, but then I decided, no, I want to go because I haven't been here for almost two years. And it's just so nice to see people for real being on Zoom calls for almost two years. So I'm just really happy to be here. 
Yep, you don't yeah. have to mute yourself today. No, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> Claire, a little, a little less challenging for you to be here, but I mean, difficult nonetheless. Yeah, no, I had a very relaxing train journey, you know, four and a half hours door to door. Perfect. I practically had my slippers on on the train and uh, it's just great to be in London. I previously was in London every week. It's now not necessary, but it's great to come and be with friends and, and just see people again and talk about the thing that we love talking about, which is television and great content. And there's been lots of that going on, obviously, during the uh, the last 18 months. The industry hasn't stopped, but it's obviously taken a massive hit, as has every uh, sector. So um, uh, big changes for you, Mark. You, you left Endemol Shine in September last year, sort of. 12 months ago pretty much and, and that was amidst the, the merger of Banerjee and Endemol Shine so um, tell us about Helium tell us about you know setting up a, a brand new business and, and stepping out from Endemol Shine after a sort of a, a, about a decade you know in the midst of a, yeah. a pandemic. I mean, look it's a, it's, it's a fabulous I mean it's a really exciting time I mean myself and my brother you know we kind of like my whole career up until now has felt like one long day it's, it's been fabulous the experiences that we've had with Fremantle Media and then Shine with Liz and then Endemol Shine. It's been an incredible period. Uh, we've learned a lot, worked with great people, had some really good success. Um, but it was just the right time, really. We had a collective period of 11 years between Shine and Endemol Shine, which literally went by so quickly. Um, and so much change over the last few years in particular. The sale to Banerjee, the third sale inside the kind of Shine experience was was kind of the right time for Carl and I. We really sort of felt it was brilliant timing. Um, and Helium, you know, is, is, is really completes the circle for me. It goes back to kind of like a larger version of the independent Crackerjack that I very first started with Carl. So it's really more of a focus on probably scripted, premium scripted and factual, but we'll certainly be doing unscripted as well. Um, and really, you're taking a lot of those experiences and wonderful lessons and um, great achievements and ploughing them into, you know, um, a new label that's really a sort of lean and nimble disruptor, kind of really positioned for quite a significantly rapidly changing landscape. So I just feel it's really great timing and it's great to be independent again, really, after what's been pretty much 15 years of working for big multinationals, you know. You've got a number of projects already underway. Can you tell us a little bit about those and what are some of the challenges that you've faced, you know, putting those things together in, in such well, difficult really circumstances. A, yeah, so I've had kind of the best part of, of a year a year off, obviously, and um, a lot of that time's been in, you know, in serious development. Part of our exit was uh, allowed us to take a project called Last King of the Cross, which is a, um, a, a premium scripted series for Paramount Plus. Um, it's a, you know, it's a, it's a crime, true crime family story, a 10 part series uh, uh, on the famous Ibrahim family. Uh, very well known in my part of the world, but it's in that same sort of territory as, I suppose, Gamora, Gangs of London, you know, those sorts of things, Sopranos, Goodfellas. Uh, and we've been really going through the scripting process, so we've almost completed with all drafts, just about literally being delivered at the end of this week. The feature film I've actually been uh, working on, uh, which has literally been the last 12 months, it, it wraps shooting in two weeks called Six Festivals. It's an independent film. Imagine in this climate making a film that's predominantly set at music festivals. Um, we've actually, I don't, we've watched them all fall over one by one. New ones start up, then they fall, fell over, but we're actually within two weeks of wrapping the shoot. 
and that'll that'll go out on Paramount Plus too, but it has a theatrical release before that. They're the two major things. Another thing, I've got Sex and Thugs and Rock and Roll, which is well advanced. Uh, Car Crash, um, a project called Paper Dolls, which is just a, a story about a girl group. So there's some really wonderful things in development, but I've been lucky really because if I've ever had to take a, a year off, it was during the last 12 months where where we've, we've really, the industry's been so disrupted, so it's good timing in that sense. So we've got a lot of challenges to navigate around, as everybody has, once we get into pre-production and then shooting of these projects. So it's, a, it's the new normal, I suppose, that we're all navigating. Um, so I'm looking forward to that. But, uh, you know, really exciting slate, wonderful things coming, um, and, yeah, I'm excited about that. And your folks at Content London, is that finding partners for these projects? Um, some of the new stuff, yes, and, and also to meet with kind of colleagues that I haven't seen for a, quite a long time. We're still very much a, a fairly risk-averse market on the unscripted side, so I'm always interested in what's out there, maybe adapting uh, international formats for the local market. That's something that you know I've had a bit of practice at um, over the years. So. We're very much looking at that, having a look at what's out there, what are the emerging trends, how other producers are coping in their respective worlds. Um, it all has a relativity to Australia. We, we're very reactive to certainly the U, UK and the US in particular. So it's great to be here to sort of see those kinds of people again. Annie, you've also stepped out of a, of a large organisation to, to set up your own business. So uh, Yellowbird, which you were the chief executive of, that became part of Zodiac, that became part of Banerjee. Um, and you've now, uh, as I say, set up Nevis Productions with backing from Navision. That was in May last year. So again, right at the height of the pandemic. Uh, tell us a little bit more about Nevis and uh, the experience of setting that up. Actually, we did set, we did found the company just before the pandemic, and we just decided to wait to announce it until May because we didn't foresee this pandemic coming as most people didn't. So, but I would say that the pandemic has been both good and bad for us. Good in the sense we have not been in production yet because we've been just started the company, so we've been focusing a lot on development. What I think has been the biggest challenge during the pandemic, being in development, is that you know all the Zoom meetings, all the virtual meetings, it's just not the same to pitch projects online instead of meeting people. I have, you know, when I met people in Cannes and here, you know, new opportunities just come up like this without even, you know, you thought about it. That doesn't happen on a Zoom call. So, and I think also things have got delayed. Uh, the broadcasters on the first shutdown or lockdown were more reluctant to make decisions. So I think we have a delay of maybe a year or so. But I'm very happy to be here and I'm really happy because we have a green light our first TV series. I'm not allowed to say anything more, unfortunately, yet. But it's a Danish series, we start shooting in February. But then, of course, I start thinking about the challenges of shooting because it doesn't seem like the pandemic will stop. So as you said, the new normal, how, how, because I haven't been in production since 2019 when I did visiting. So that's going to be uh, a challenge, yes. And we also have a feature film announcement. We signed up a contract with a very famous band in Sweden, music band called Golden Age. One of the band members later founded Roxette, as you might know. Oh, yeah. So we did an agreement with the band, met with them many times since August, and finally signed the deal. 
and have a scriptwriter and a treatment and hope to be able to start shooting next year. So I'm very excited about that as well. So that's a feature movie and we have the possibility of doing a spin-off TV series as well. So You've also got a project with Sophia Helen, is that correct? Yeah, that's as well? Wake. That's, been, that's still in development. Uh, it's taking longer, to be honest, than expected uh, to find the right angle into the project. But I think I've had some interesting meeting lately. So I think that we are almost finding, I've had meetings, I'm speaking mainly with broadcasters outside Scandinavia. So hopefully it will be an international English language series. And a dramedy series called Neighbourhood Watch. Neighbourhood Watch we have with Jacob Seth Fransson, who's a writer in Sweden who did Soul Sedan and Bonus Family. And we are actually waiting for some material that's just coming in to, to pitch uh, very soon. Hopefully physical meetings. <laughs> we seem to hear quite a lot about uh, Scandinavian dramedies uh, at the moment, at least I, I seem to be anyway. I mean, obviously you've got an incredible heritage in terms of the, the Scandi Noir, the, the, the Millennium Trilogy, uh, Wallander, all the shows that you, you worked on. Um, you know, what, what's the sort of, I don't know, is, is there a kind of a, a trend coming out of that market at the moment? Is dramedy the, the, the new... That's a good question actually. I think many, that's my experience is that a lot of the streamers and broadcasters are asking for that because people want to watch something that makes you laugh and feel, you know, a feel-good series. But at the same time, they always also ask about crime series. So I think there's still room for both. Uh, but, you know, it's, uh, you just have to find uh, the right project, I think, to match what they're looking for, and it changes all the time, as you know. So, Claire, you joined us uh, in one of these discussions two years ago, 2019. <laughs> Thanks for coming back. <laughs> uh, still standing. Um, you know, the, the, these past times have been a great period for, for development, and um, you've been snapping up projects left, right, and centre, adaptations of novels from authors including Andrew O'Hagan, Graham Armstrong, Helen Fitzgerald, Mark Lawrence, Zoe Playden, plenty more. Um, tell us about some of those and again, you know, these past 18 months, it's development's been the focus, right? Yeah, the past 18 months have been like a perfect hothouse for development. I mean, literally, I think um, if, I, if I had to uh, uh, create an environment in which, you know, you would have the perfect circumstances for reading lots of great material and thinking very carefully about how to tell those stories and adapt them. It, it would have been the pandemic. Obviously, there were lots of other downsides to the pandemic, but from that point of view for us, it was perfect. Um, we're a very IP-focused company. We've got lots of books. We recently announced uh, several fantastic new stories, uh, one being The Hidden Case of Ewan Forbes, which is based on the non-fiction book by Zoe Playden, which is the true story of uh, Ewan Forbes Semple, who was wrongly assigned female at birth. Um, but uh, because of the rules of primogeniture, when he inherited his family title, castle, estate in the northeast of Scotland, he was challenged um, by his cousin and went to court to defend his right to retain everything that was his inheritance under those laws, even though he was, as I say, wrongly assigned female at birth. It's an incredible true story. Um, we've also got Andy O'Hagan's Mayflies. Andy O'Hagan's one of my most favourite authors, and that is a beautiful story of male friendship and and really being in a position where you have to enable one of your best friends to make the most difficult decision you could ever make, which is to end your own life and um, 
is about euthanasia uh, and we're adapting that with Andrea Gibb at the helm, the wonderful Andrea Gibb. We have uh, several other books which are all in some way connected to or of or in uh, or inspired by Scotland and that's our unashamed passion. Um, we love to champion Scottish talent and Scottish stories on an international stage. So uh, having said that, we're here with a project which is none of those things, which is a co-production with Eric Barmack, um, who's a great friend and colleague of ours, called One Word Kill, and that's a young adult series based on the books of Mark Lawrence about friendship, uh, first love and time travel and cancer. So uh, yeah, lots of things um, in development that are about to uh, hopefully head to production next year. One, one very big thing heading to production next year that I can't tell you about right now, but it's good to be tantalising, isn't it? <laughs> so, um, I mean, we've talked about some of the challenges that we've seen and some of the opportunities that have opened up. I mean, streaming's obviously been a massive story of the past couple of years as well, the sort of proliferation of uh, services that are available to consumers and the uptake of on-demand services. Broadcasters are facing challenges, but I mean, the market in terms of where you can take a project to get it away has, has grown enormously and there's still a massive appetite for uh, television clearly so um, harder or easier to uh, to get these projects away i don't think there's ever anything <clears throat> easy about it <laughs> if there was i guess you know we'd all put our feet up but i think the the plethora of opportunities of platforms um of audience demand is really exciting and i you know i think it 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 feels like there's something for everyone, literally, and that when it comes to managing your development slate, you, you do find yourself sometimes with certain projects which literally perhaps could only fit one or two very specific places, um, and less, less of those, fortunately I think, less of those generic projects that can kind of duck and dive in, in, most, in most different um, broadcasters, but I, I think it's very much about segmentation, about knowing what, who the audience is, what the brand is that you're making for, and that's exciting to me because it means that there's opportunity for diversity of stories and, and content. I think it's probably never been a more exciting time, um, you know, but at the same time, you know, it's still challenging to get new ideas through. It's still challenging to get to the right people in terms of the commissioning process. Um, certainly that, you know, I think we, we all know that you know, traditional terrestrial broadcast television is, is facing enormous challenges. But I think they're all doing really well in terms of trying to future-proof their businesses and areas like BVOD and things like that. Um, and for producers, you know, we want them all to be healthy. Um, we want them all commissioning more stuff. We want more platforms. We want more streamers. You know, bring it on. Um, but it is, it is still a little challenging navigating through to the right person to listen to your pitch. You know, um, it's been very difficult with that, with, with that without face-to-face. Um, and I think a lot of for, for commissioners, one Zoom after the next, after the next, after the next, for eight or nine hours a day, it must be overwhelming at the same time. So in a small market like ours, I can certainly say for the likes of an, an Amazon or a Netflix, a Stan, Paramount, they are overwhelmed uh, from people, you know, from pitches. So it's, it's challenging to, to still navigate through those areas. Even if you've got a brilliant idea, um, the commissioning process is still not easy, I don't think. 
yeah, I agree with you. It's, uh, I think there are many projects out there. That's at least why I, what I hear from commissioners and streamers. And there's also a lot of changes all the time. Commissioners changing from one you know, streamer to the other. And there's a lot of focus uh, you know, about the streaming war. Who will survive? Who will merge? So suddenly you think you're dealing with one commissioner and then I had an experience where I had a phone call saying, you know, I cannot go into details, but then suddenly there was a big change within the organization. The project was fine, but we just have to change, you know, maneuver around all the internal changes as well. So, so that's something that, well, that of course happens all the time. One of the other big stories of the past few years, I mean, it was obviously, it's always been a story in the industry, but uh, uh, there's been no sort of slowdown in the, in the mergers and acquisitions kind of side of things. Um, so given that uh, you, Annie and, and, and Mark, you've both stepped out of large organizations that have been a part of that process to sort of set up on your own, uh, you know, how, how do you feel that story, those dynamics are going to play out in 2022? Well, you know, we're seeing sort of, you know, one silo kind of gobble up the next in a, in a sense. Um, and, you know, again, I, I, I learned an awful lot and had wonderful experiences, but I'm pleased to be out of that world. There's such an enormous amount of pressure on hitting numbers, on volume. Um, you know, you're trying to hit numbers that are going up when the actual amount of content being commissioned is reducing. Um, so it's it's a challenge, I think, for, for any of those big, big, big multinationals. Um, it is going to be a challenge. You, you kind of wonder where the future is for them because there's so much of their business is tied to traditional network TV as opposed to the streaming side of things. They're all trying to crack crack through that wall, but it but it, you know it's it's hard for them. So I think for us, yeah, it's it's a refreshing time to kind of step step off that that treadmill a fair bit, you know. Um, they'll continue on. You know, they're all trying to find ways to keep their big Uber brands, the Master Chefs and the Big Brothers of this world healthy how do i keep it healthy healthy for another season another season you know and you know there's a little bit of a sort of you've got to get that sort of sense that they're you know they're all kind of clinging on a fair bit um and i don't mean that in any disingenuous way i, I just kind of see that as a trend i see that emerging i mean we are the, the world is spinning much faster now you know um the, 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 the nature of people's viewing habits, the lives that we're leading, you know, the technology that influences us. I mean, how many, you know, how many subscriptions can I afford each month type thing? And that, that's, that, you know, forget the, forget the phone, the phone bill. It's more about the subs. I've got 12 subs and 60 apps and all this sort of stuff. It, it's, it's a really rapidly changed world and that's exciting. Um, but I do look at those big multinationals and I sort of scratch my head a little bit because it's going to be continually challenging for them to keep, to keep growing exponentially in this kind of an environment. Can I say something that's a little different because I, I completely agree, agree with you on that. But I think what, our, what we really challenge right now is because there's so many productions, so much in development, so the demand for writers for crew, it's actually a big problem uh, or challenge, at least in Scandinavia, I assume it might be the same outside. Yeah, so we've been talking a lot about finding new talents. Uh, and I think I have, it's easier for me being, you know, independent 
to work with new and emerging talents that hasn't done. You know, I'm now working with a director who's never done a feature film or TV series before, but we actually got the green light of a series with him because he's just done such great work, you know, on writing. And uh, so there's an opportunity for the new talent, young people to... I love to work with all the young people that really want to do this and they have, you know, there's a lot of talent out there, so try to focus on that. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think I think the competition for writers is fierce. I think the streamers are capable and, and are buying up, you know, some of the more established writers. They're buying them up for two-year, three-year deals. I think, you know, whilst that's frustrating if you're going after a particular writer who has one of those deals, what it does do is it makes us all think outside the box and, and look in those areas for new talent. And I think, you know, ultimately it's about the voice of that writer and, and sometimes a newer voice, less jaded perhaps, and less, sometimes less experience is, is, is a better thing because people are freer in the way the stories they want to tell. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's it's challenging time. I think um, crew costs, talent costs are rising exponentially. Um, but, you know, if you're an independent producer, a truly independent producer, you wake up every morning driven by the stories that you want to tell and the challenge of putting them together. You're not, it's not a job. You're not, you're not having to do what you're told by anybody else, which is something I've never been very good at. So I, I love the nimbleness of that. And sure, it's a risk, you know, and there's huge competition. But how great to be able to literally decide that you're interested in something or you read a book you love, you meet a writer that you love and just say, well, do you know what? I'm going to I'm going to put my passion into that and get it made rather than, you know, it becoming like a sort of a corporate endeavour, which um, I just think, you know, as soon as that happens, it's um, I think you lose your personal fire for it. Yeah, I think for me anyway, going back to being independent again, you, you get you're coming back closer to the thing that got you into it in the first place. To be able to read a script that someone's written and go, oh my God, that is just so amazing. How did they do that? Yeah. The joy of that, yeah. you know, it, I've, it's never left me, but I can sum it. Now I've got the time to read a script or to read a book and want to actually license it. It's like, oh my God, you know, it's suddenly you reminded us to why you started out in of the first Of course, it's a very part. pure endeavour. And I think, I think often, you know, it can become very distracting, very dizzying to look around at everything that's happening, all the platforms, the business, you know, the trends. But really, when you come down to it, it is you and a writer and a piece of material that you think communicates something that will move people. And, you, and if it moves you, then there's a fair chance it's going to move other people. And, and that's exciting to me. That gets me up in the morning. I'm delighted to be joined today by Lars Blomgren, Head of Scripted at Banerjee Group, James Jury, Head of Scripted TV at Cineflix Rights, and Marina Williams, Co-Chief Executive of Asatcha Media Group. Hello everybody, welcome to Content London. Thank you. Thank you. Great to have you here. Um, Lars, it's been a challenging 18 months for everybody. Uh, for Banerjee, yourself, uh, former Endemol Shine Group, the biggest merger in the industry happened in the midst of a pandemic you were appointed head of scripted 12 months ago I think it was amidst all of that that process so um, it's been a pretty interesting period for you how's how's that been I think it's yeah it's been challenging for everyone I mean not only the merger of course if you take two big companies and make one of it it's like it's a challenge but that worked out fine and I think uh, we talk a lot about this now with the 
it's such a clear before and after because we had the merger, but we also had COVID and all the consequences of COVID. We had Me Too, we had Black Lives Matters and all this inclusion and, and diversity and all of that. And, and that changed the business completely. And I focused on the creative side a lot and we had to carefully look at our slates and see what actually works in this new world. And, and uh, we have to tell stories maybe in a new way, new stories in a new way. So, but I think uh, we've survived it. And I think that apart from COVID, I think the other things are for the better for all of us. So, What's your focus here at Content London this week? I'm, I'm just trying to see a lot of people. I've, I've been listening in to a few, a few of the panels, but I, I, I'm so happy to see people in person again. It makes such a difference. And it's, it's almost always that final comment when you're going out through the door or like the, the things you don't do on Zoom. And that's, so it's been amazing. So it's a, yeah, it's a real, real experience to be back here. You haven't been doing much traveling. I mean, obviously you're in charge of a, of a vast organization with operations in different countries. Have you been able to, um, you know, to move around a bit? I work from home and I'm Swedish. So I worked from home for 18 months. And then in, uh, after, in August, I started traveling. So I've been to most of the European territories and to uh, Los Angeles as well. And uh, that's been, it's been strange and, and wonderful in many ways to start traveling again. And unfortunately, it's, it's something, it's part of the business we have to do as a global company. And you're beginning to sort of feel the difference of those, those in-person meetings beginning to happen again. You say it's kind of changing the way things are developing. It's strange. I mean, especially if you've had a lot, because of the mergers, there's quite a few people that we've never met outside Zoom. So someone turns out to be alone, working, you know, it's like that, or short or whatever, and it's like. But it, it's it's a big difference. James, what about you? You joined Cineflix Rights from Miramax in March last year, so that was pretty much about the time that the the pandemic hit. What what's that experience yes. been like? And you know, what are some of the challenges of, of joining at such a, a difficult time? Yes, it was uh, intriguing. I had two weeks in an office and then from that moment on it was the front room of my house. Um, and so it was an intriguing time to, to join the company. Um, and as Lars has said, you know, trying to get to know people via Zoom. Um, of course, Zoom's a fantastic piece of kit and you really can continue your business, but only to a certain level. You, you can't really get behind and underneath the skin uh, of people in the same way that you can face to face. But in saying that, um, the transition to Cineflix was really seamless and I joined at a time when content was incredibly sought after, whether it was shows that were on the shelf or shows that were in production uh, that could continue that production, obviously. Um, it was an exciting time, so um, it's a sort of double-edged sword, if you like. Uh, Covid was uh, horrific to to put onto the, uh, to the to the business and the production hiatus was really affected a lot of companies. But at the same time, our, our sort of distribution business, if you like, had a um, had a great had a, had a moment in order to uh, sell to a lot of places and in, and territories that we hadn't done previously. So yeah, it was a really interesting period. I, guess, I mean, one of your shows, Coroner, I think that was picked up by the C. No, correct. Yeah. So the CW picked up the Coroner. Um, and it was a, it's been a fantastic leading show for them, um, hitting their key demographics really, really well. And um, it's a show that we've been uh, obviously working with the CBC for a long time. But and from an international perspective, we really started um, growing it in the US 
um, across Europe, um, Australia and a number of other territories in and around that period. Um, so it's definitely a show which has grown um, over, the, over those last two years um, and it's been a great success. And you're just celebrating an, an Emmy win or at least one of your shows that you distributed, uh, uh, Tehran, the Apple TV Plus series, um, just picked up an international Emmy. Another Israeli drama that you're distributing as well as kind of that genre still remains uh, very popular, you feel, amongst audiences. Uh, yeah, twofold. I, I mean, I had uh, was lucky enough to be in, in New York with the producers when, when they won, won the Emmy and it was a uh, it was an amazing feeling for, for the journey that they've been on um, with this quite small um, Israeli show which they produced for the public broadcaster Cannes to it becoming an Apple TV Plus um, front-running show, one of their biggest launches um, at the end of last year. And it, it was fantastic to be a part of that environment for them. But it kind of shows how international drama has really broken down a lot of barriers and uh, where now there aren't any markets left where you can't sell a show from any country. They, the possibilities are huge and the US was that final frontier, if you like, for international language shows. And we're seeing now uh, case after case in which uh, traditional US broadcasters are, are happy to, to uh, schedule and, and license um, those shows. And, Tehran was, was one of those and we're really proud to, to be a part of it and, uh, and sort of uh, see its success now uh, in terms of awards but also in viewers and uh, the return of the season two um, next year or this year um, is, yeah, is, is a testament to that. Marina, formerly Chief Operating Officer of Endemol Shine Group, so you've had dealings with, with Lars in the past. Um, you joined forces with some big hitters from Banerjee and Zodiac and launched the Satcha Media Group, again, just as the pandemic was beginning to bite. And um, you've been pretty busy ever since, it seems. You're buying up WAG Entertainment, a stake in Red Planet Pictures, Cabo Family. Uh, that was all this year. Uh, you've just hired Maria Ishak to, to head up your co-production efforts so uh, you know what's that journey been like for a Satcha Media Group? Well it's been uh, quite an incredible year for a Satcha Media Group because we are a very young company as you rightly pointed out even though the project was conceived in uh, 2018 together with my partners Mark Antoine de Luin and Gaspar de Chavignac and it took us two years to put it together and to raise finance so you can imagine how we felt when everything was coming together. Our first acquisitions in Italy, our financing deal with their private equity investor and COVID starts, literally April 2020. So um, it was a stressful experience, but uh, the great news was that there is a lot of trust between all the shareholders and um, the project took off. So since April 2020, we managed to acquire and partner with six companies across Europe. So I, we solidified, I would say, and scaled our business. So we, that's kind of the reason why we are at the stage that we can start building a little bit our central function. And uh, we brought Maria Ishak from All3 Media. Uh, she was predominantly focusing on North American market, which is important for us because obviously a lot of streamers are coming from US market and we need to understand not only their European play but also their global uh, play and our focus will be a lot on co-productions uh, not only between our companies like Cabo and Red Planet 
and uh, Pico Media, which is also a prime TV series producer in Italy, but also looking outside of Asacha. And that's one of the reasons why we're here at Content London, because we'd like to see uh, independent producers and see uh, whether we can collaborate with them. And I think these days, everybody worked together. We actually have one project in conception between Bunny Jai Russia and Pico Media in Italy. So, uh, you know, you in some fields you compete, but in other fields, when it comes to great content, you collaborate. Where do you all feel that the business is at right now in terms of, I guess, its recovery from uh, the impact that's been experienced over the, over the past 18 months? You're all focused on scripted largely, uh, and that's one of the sectors that was, was hit the hardest, but still the demand for dramas is, is as high as ever, if not even higher, as a result of audiences all being at home and, and signing up to ever more streaming services. Our, our focus is on scripted. Uh, however, we also have factual business and we made just one initial acquisition in UK with WAG Entertainment, um, where we have a small catalog of content and we distribute this content. We mainly produce shows for US market, however, expanded now to UK and soon we'll be announcing some deals with their platforms as well. Uh, so it's, um, you know, exciting opportunity for us to uh, to actually uh, step up to, to a new stage where we're still going to be scaling our business because we still want to enter markets such as Germany, Spain and uh, Eastern Europe uh, next year. So um, we're still on the growth path. Where do you feel the business is at right now? How, how close are we to sort of a, a recovery to sort of pre-pandemic kind of business you know it's a good question and I was thinking about this the other day talking to some uh, earlier and um, I'm trying to work out whether uh, you know the impact of, of COVID what that has had or what are other were happening anyway in the business so if you look at one of the the huge changes for us as distributors is the amount of new entrants in the market with the streamers launching um, the US streamers but also local um, streamers as well and then how the broadcasters the traditional local broadcasters are adapting to that uh, to those entrants in the market and I feel that was happening with or without COVID it probably got accelerated um, like every industry the move to digitization was accelerated but um, for us it's certainly seen twofold one that the certainly in the European market the entrance of the uh, streamers and their desire for European content obviously from a quota perspective, but also to appeal to local subscribers, means that there is a desire from the likes of Disney and HBO, um, Amazon and uh, IMDb's and uh, players like that for European content, which is a new entrant. And then equally, the European traditional broadcasters, if you like, being much more open to English language content and coming on board English language content at a much, much earlier stage at a co-production, at a commissioning, if, if you look at the swarm, uh, stage, but also at a co-production, at a pre-sale level, um, and so I, I kind of feel that over those that period of what is it, 18, 20 months or so, uh, the the boundaries and barriers have just sort of fallen down, and you can kind of pitch any show to anyone at the moment, which is super exciting if you're in the scripted business. Oh, I agree, and, and it's interesting because the. I think the COVID in a way opened up the door for, for a lot of uh, non-English content in the like Tehran or, or Valley of Tears from us that work really well on HBO Max. But the, the thing is that luckily we had this 
right in the end where we all thought oh they're going to start buying English content again you know when the world when, then uh, Squid Game came like the and that was like the, the last like the tipping point so now they're all like I think most of in LA one of my takeaways from LA is that they they really want their own local people to understand <laughs> that if something is more than just local or it's got a more than maybe a global a local show with a global potential they're willing to finance you know step up and work with bigger budgets and that's they this uh before my feeling was that the ambition was to be local for local with a local budget but now they see that it actually pays off to to do bigger bets in non-english which is amazing for us it's music to my ears in non-english because uh, i always believed in the non-english content you know uh, coming from uh, eastern europe into this world uh, i always try to focus every company i worked at on non-english and nobody none of the distributors were looking into it so that was actually originally and you're also from session. a very strong storytelling i mean the the, the russian storytelling is amazing yes. and, and that's uh, now everyone's opening up for it, so I th it, it's for the better for everyone. It's I think it, on one side, yes, you're right. So it's, you yes. know, it's, the stories can come from anywhere, which I think. I think uh, the other big change that I, I, I hope you agree, but yeah. just before the pandemic, the focus was very much on number of clicks, and now when you have this competition between all the players, you have to, they have to focus on completion rate instead. And the only way to get completion rate is if you have a high-end show or a really good story. So the focus on, it's like you're going from there being acquisitions people buying something on a pitch and then it works enough to get that click. But now that you, you really need people to finish the show. So that they need to be better curators and they're becoming better. And, and uh, I think it's a quality upgrade as well, which is great for us. It's very, very interesting development, I thought, with um, CJ and M acquiring uh, Endeavor content. I mean, there's been a lot of talk about Korean formats and adaptations and things, but to me that felt like a really major statement of, you know, a, a, a different kind of player kind of really putting its stamp on the business and an indication of how things are becoming much more international. Amazing timing wasn't it? You have the biggest Korean show of all time ever and so and then you have a Korean company coming in to buy a big name within the business. It's uh, It just shows how international it has become. I remember going to the gym across the road from Animal Shine and you go on the treadmill and the TV set is on and I guess there were Korean tourists there because there was quite often Korean channel on with, uh, with a lot of repeat dramas and I would just keep it on when I jog and I thought wow it's engaging it was in Korean language, I didn't understand it, but just you follow the acting and the storyline, and I thought that's incredible, we never see those stories come into the world. And then the second experience was with option for Turkey, in fact, Korean drama, which from 16 episodes, Korean story turned out to be 290 episodes, Turkish drama. <laughs> so, you know, Squid Game in a way for me was not a surprise because I was, I was waiting for something big coming out of Korea. And I think it's fantastic that today streamers can allow everybody in the world to enjoy, you know, these stories with no boundaries. But I, I just, coming back to the Endeavor deal, it's, it's interesting because the, the other big thing, the fight that's been going on, that's between the Writers Guild and the agent, and, and this ended up with them not being able to package anymore. And I think this will have a much bigger impact on us than we expect because they have to look for new revenue stream, and the revenue stream, that's their talent. 
they have to go back to, to focusing on talent. So they're, they're diving into Europe and everywhere. And I, when I was in LA, I had lunch at the fancy peninsula and, and the table next to me was one of the biggest agents in LA together with the director of Squid Game. So it's like, they, they're just gonna go everywhere now. So, so we will have to, the, the fight for talent will be harder than ever. So that leads us neatly into predictions for 2022 because we're, we're kind of obviously near the end of 2021. Looking ahead, the fight for talent, one of the, uh, the, the, the sort of challenges that you've identified there. Um, other challenges, opportunities for 2022? Well, challenges may be a first question, right? So it's not only fight for talent, it's also fight even for production crews from my perspective especially in key markets I can see this happening in, in UK on a big scale you know it's very difficult to secure production crew even to the level of cameraman on the same price point and I think that's where you start winning on the relationships on the credibility on the trust and partnering you know with producers who's been in the market for many years uh, but opportunities of course are there because we still see that uh, you know Netflix was the biggest spender but now hopefully Disney, HBO Max, Peacock, you know, and others will have to step up the game on the original content. And this is, I would think, all of our opportunities. Yeah. Uh, and for distributors, from my point of view, it's also a big opportunity because, you know, in the, with streamers trying to dominate totally all the rights, there is more and more desire on the producer's side to create co-funding models where they try to keep at least some piece of waterfall of uh, distribution revenues and IP. So they'll come more and more often to, you know, Banijai, to Cinefix, to other big distributors to see whether they can close a small gap in financing, but at the same time, it will allow us to retain some of the IP ownership in the end. James, challenges, opportunities for 2022? Yeah, I think challenge, um, if you look at the, the US in particular, is that that um, concertina effect that the production hiatus had, I think we're starting to see a little bit of the impact now on their ability to pick up new shows. And they are going to production on a lot of things at the moment in the US and are sort of holding back a little bit on third party commissions and co-productions. And I think we're seeing a bit of an impact there. Um, and how long that continues for will be interesting because obviously it's such a key part of all of our financial models is that, that US piece um, and just that we'll see how long that lasts until those that sort of um, back, um, they kind of backfill that uh, production. Um, and yeah, in terms of opportunities, I think, and at last touched on it before, is the so alongside COVID was the social changes that happened over that period in Black Lives Matters and obviously Me Too was beforehand and uh, the appetite of broadcast commissioners and streams commissioners and also producers to write new stories with new voices and new um, talent is super exciting and just here um, over the last day or two uh, I've seen a definite sea change in um, that's in the quality and style that's being written and where the voices are coming from and my big bugbear has always been I look around here there's very few people under the age of 35. There's probably no one under the age of 25. And that is a problem because that generation need, want, need to come into our business. Because if we don't bring them in, 
they'll just go on YouTube and they'll play roadblocks and everything else. And I'm worried that we're not quite catering for those voices to write those stories. And that's what my, my call to arms would be is, you know, let's try and find those voices and get those stories and make those shows. Uh, because I, I think it's a, an area that we miss out on a little bit in this business. Lars, a final thought from you. No, I agree. I think succession will be extremely important. All the finding the new, the next level of talent to work with, and and I also think that the the, the co-production model, as we said, that's, that there's a revival for it. And it made me really glad to hear peers talk about the local streamers collaborating with local. But that's an opportunity for us if we can co-produce. So I'm quite optimistic. That was Content London 2021. A huge thank you from all of us at C21 to those who attended and for their understanding of the challenges we faced in putting on the event. Thank you too for listening. If you weren't able to make it, you'll be able to hear plenty more discussion from the event in upcoming episodes or by tuning into our C21 FM radio station. In the meantime, stay safe and up to date with all the latest international TV industry news and views by following C21 online, on mobile and social media. My name's Jonathan Webdale. Goodbye.